Hello everyone, I'm Mark, the chief writer here at Maltopia, and I just wanted to remind you the sleep-wake cycle is but one of a series of interconnected horror podcasts within the wide and weird world of Maltopia. For Easter eggs, crossover events, and additional lore, please check out our other series, The Shepherd of Wolves, Red Mother, Grimland, and The Damnation Machine. And be sure to check out our free content on our Patreon page for additional lore and stories. For even more Maltopia content, consider becoming a patron. Starting for as little as $2 a month, benefits range from additional art, update videos, early episode access, our mini-podcast series, October's Children, both written and full audio pieces, such as The Lost Library, Tales of Maltopia, and The Weird Book. You can also gain access to our found footage show, The Weird Tape Series, and even our Patreon-exclusive, fully-produced audio series, Devil's Clay. So, with all that said, I will leave you to the darkness. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Rusty Quill Presents. Hey everyone, Steve here. Mark Walker and I wanted to thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Maltopia podcast, and we wanted to take a moment to tell you about our other projects that provide you with exclusive content and behind-the-scenes bonus videos. How would you like early access to every podcast episode and creator videos that go into detail about your favorite stories? For free samples of what our Patreon has to offer, check out patreon.com slash Maltopia and scroll through our public content. Is The Shepherd of Wolves your favorite series? Now you can listen to our award-winning audiobook adaptation, The Red Sun, free with your 30-day trial to Audible. For animated YouTube narrations, original artwork, and more, check out our website at maltopia.com. You can also tweet us on Twitter and join the fun on our Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, we love nothing more than hearing feedback from you, so take a moment to like, comment, rate, and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Just a few seconds of your time makes all the difference, helping us reach more folks just like you who can join the Maltopia experience. With your support, we'll be able to offer even more of the content you love to listen to, watch, and read. Thanks again from the three of us. We can't do this without you. I gave myself a name. I'm not certain where my initial label came from. The vague recollection of having a mother and father gets hazier all the time, and I feel no obligation to honor a title bestowed me by what might have been poorly constructed puppets. A name should mean something, or, as in my case, precisely nothing. I call myself for what I am, what we all are, deep down. Perhaps it's just my way of declaring to whatever forces fashioned this place that I'm not fool enough to accept all this existence nonsense. And such is the purpose behind this diary I've begun, to catalog meaningless reflections, catch the void out in the open, 
and to laugh at all its foolish attempts to paint upon a canvas of wind with a brush made of whispers. For all of these reasons, I am John Nill. I should begin by outlining the first time I managed a glimpse behind the spectacle of it all, my first glimpse of the gloom. I was out driving late at night, as was, and still is, my custom. I have no idea how many times I've done so, to acquire or regain perspective on various things, but to be certain, there must have been hundreds, if not thousands, of such trips. Despite the late hour of my routine wanderings, I was always forced to wait for some seemingly random car to pass by before turning onto Route 12, the quickest way into the dark and solemn countryside, my refuge. The car was never the same, but always came at me from the exact distance every time, like clockwork, and it never failed to turn off onto some side road before reaching the limits of the city, as if it shouldn't linger long within sight, my sight. One night, after letting the car pass, I resolved to follow it. I wasn't sure what I was looking to prove, but something seemed too prescribed about the whole routine. As I trailed along behind, I began to wonder if the car was even real and not some specter doomed to replay its passage upon the road for whatever dark historical purpose. But even that theory seemed too hollow to pass muster as there was nothing ominous about the pattern for which the vehicle had become merely a symbol. The whole affair seemed empty, a play without players, or more specifically, a play without enough players. The car wandered without purpose, crossing into unpaved country lanes, lingering too long at desolate crossroads, creeping over ancient stone bridges, swerving beyond the yellow line. It appeared to be trying to exhaust me of the will to see my resolution to conclusion. After quite some time, my quarry did arrive at its destination, or perhaps a destination. A small house squatting in the thickets of an untended scrap of yard. I parked beneath the ample overreach of some trees nearest the edge of the road, headlights off and hidden from the man who stumbled forth from the vehicle. His movements were sloppy, even exaggerated too eager to convince me of his apparent drunkenness, it seemed to me. I waited about half an hour before getting out of the car and approaching the house. After a careful navigation of the many shadows lining the street, I found myself standing at the end of the driveway, taking in a wide view of the dwelling in question. It had the look of a prop, an unconvincing stage ornament serving as a sign for something more nuanced than it could convey with so truncated a physical presence. Just the way it stood out against the infinite sky screamed of provision and shoddiness, like a crude painting of trees leaning up against the real thing. The distinction was all but tangible in its departure from real life. I opened the door to the house with the expectation that the whole place should fall over like some stilted cutout from a cheap theatrical production. But to my surprise, the door yielded a messy living room and several smaller rooms projecting from it. Like its exterior, the structure proclaimed, quite despite its efforts to the contrary, its fleetingness. Lacking a definable and retraceable history, it was more like a room hastily repurposed as a space to store old furniture than a living person's home. There was a manic uncertainty churning all around me as I passed into the bedroom of the supposed owner, 
as if the darkness weren't sure what to do with the sights I intended to wrench free of it with my flashlight. Within seconds, I held the man fast in a beam of light, his face washed out before its pronounced ruddiness, the illumination dimming orange at the edges of the glowing oval, almost merging with the water damage of the wall and ceiling. A nice, if hasty, bit of detail. I was expected, no doubt, to believe his unresponsiveness the product of inebriation, rather than the absence of a properly written script. It appeared that no words were more convincing than poorly spoken ones. My doubts at his permanency prompted a few groans from the disheveled man, but they were performed in vain. I had caught on to the game being played. The blinders were off. I left the facsimile to its business, eager to contemplate my conclusions. By the time I returned home, my notions concerning the infirmity of reality were mostly formed. Still, it would be many years until I had a fully functioning dissertation. It's still but a working hypothesis, if I'm to be honest, but it's a satisfying understanding. I've learned that the world is comprised mostly of gloom, which is to say it's largely unreal. The gloom is the unformed stuff of our reality, a hopeless deficit in the proof for solid, law-governed reality. You see, for whatever reason, this place, a universe, world, room, emptiness, wishes to compel a belief in a wider theater of being, where unassailable logics of time and space map onto various patterns, formulas, and so forth. Here, oblivion seeks to deny itself, and thus we are created, the best proof that nothingness has for its own existence. Yet, the unlikely truth is always the inverse. Existence is fashioned from nothing at all, not even dust. To fully realize this truth might just bring this whole circus tumbling back into the void. To avoid this complication, the oblivion must continuously hide the flaws in its own thinking, using the malleable gloom as a temporary solution, a sort of cosmic spackling patching it over the cracks. The ordeal with a drunken man was nothing shy of a vulgar application of that metamaterial to make me believe I wasn't the only person in the world, alone with his thoughts, traveling a road into the darkened countryside. To the Void's credit, I was convinced for many years. Since my realization, I've suffered a recurrent nightmare, no doubt inspired by my sharp correction in perspective. It starts out with a shrinking view of a faceless crowd, the sounds of their clamping footsteps narrowing to a single pair of footfalls. The isolated sounds give the impression of climbing up a flight of stairs originating somewhere beneath me, growing more ominous for their proximity. The footsteps then break apart into the flattest silence imaginable, the sound of the dead. Within this funeral hush, I see thousands of ruined, naked bodies, all unpacked of their insides, their liberated organs systematized into neat piles beside them. Before I can react, a horrible voice hisses from over my shoulder. Every day you're alive is a holiday. The dream itself has inspired many more trips to the darkened countryside, trips often untroubled by the nearness of the other late-night travelers. I suspect that it was a waste of time and energy to continue that particular ruse, which got me to wondering at precisely how much of reality was utter nonsense. Such thoughts came to dominate my thinking, 
and I couldn't help my now habitual inspection of the legitimacy of the world around me. To my shock, I found far too much of my immediacy suffused with gloom, further solidifying my strange suspicion of reality's reduced scale and lack of cohesion. The size of the universe is often called upon to justify the possibility of so many things gods, aliens, ghosts, etc. And yet, it seems necessary for me now to suppose that the vastness is the illusion and the universe is no larger than the space between us. Imagine, if you will, my reaction when I realized that certain books I'd read several times over contained passages and plots that were absent my initial reading, added, no doubt, to change my thinking concerning some reality-enforcing matter, the so-called butterfly effect, weaponized. Even my memories came under scrutiny, revealing upon slight prodding just how makeshift they were. For example, to calm myself, I often reflect upon a childhood memory of lying in bed at night, gazing at the tree that stood outside my window. I would imagine its lush canopy as various animals and other comforting shapes until passing into sleep. Not so long ago, having cause to drive past my childhood residence, I realized that the tree wasn't close enough to my bedroom window to have allowed me to gaze upon it at all. Even the past, it became evident, was thick with gloom. My trips into darkened places became extravagant, as the burden of my knowledge grew all the heavier with each new cosmic insight. I had become a perpetual presence in the hidden places of the moonlit countryside, pacing and thinking in circles. But even that refuge wasn't beyond the touch of a broken universe. Again, eager to dash my aspirations to solitude and convince me of the existence of other night thinkers, the void had fashioned a gloom. This time, it was in the shape of a short, well-dressed old man. He was overburdened with sadness, judging by his whimpering, and soon settled down in a meadow upon his knees. The complexity of this gloom body was a marked improvement over the drunkard of years prior. Some effort had gone into its construction, which became all the more apparent when the man steepled his hands in silent prayer and looked upon the moon. He also wore an outdated hat, a fedora with a feather tucked into its slender gray band. Here was an act of sincerest redemption. The void would have me back, a born-again believer in solid, real life. But this man was too real, overdone with the need to convince me of his genuineness. Why would he be so well-dressed, on his knees in the dirt, in the middle of the forest at two o'clock in the morning? This was no man with a cogent history of misfortune and night traveling, but a miscalculation of elements meant to deprive me of my current paradigm. So, I took the feather from his head as a memento, and left the rest of him to plead to whatever god I was to believe him beholden to. When I arrived home, I placed the feather in the gloom cabinet, my repository for all things gloom made, the heirlooms of a faulty universe. But the simulacrum's praying did get me thinking about religion, gods in particular, and how they might be responsible for the condition of the universe. If there were a god, I'd have to assume it's some type of machine, something cold and numeric, just a winter of blue steel and icy purpose. But even now as I think about it, gods would merely offer more proof for the incompleteness of creation, clumsy substitutes for refined explanation of child death and genetic mutation. Just more gloom. 
It's of little wonder that I stopped going to work. Why play along anymore? I decided to take up far more interesting pursuits, as intrigue was all that was left for me. I also quit my small circle of friends. That is, of course, if I'd ever really had friends in the first place. I decided I needed to know more intimately the barest corners of reality, where the truth existed in doubtful quantity, and fact and fantasy were as good as synonyms. Concerning the manufacturing of strangers, it appeared more difficult for the void to keep pace with me, given my now empty schedule. Its gloom bodies grew more simplified and threadbare, and I moved throughout the landscape with little external regulation. Exchanges with these thin facades were of the most perfunctory variety, as clipped and monotone as community theater dialogues, further supplying with almost measurable precision the limitations of creation. Without adherence to any kind of predictable schedule, the nothingness proved far less capable of fashioning the appropriate glooms. So much so that I began to encounter entire swaths of reality filled only with the most provisional structures and persons. Whole towns where everyone spoke and acted the same, living in identical circumstances, and reacting uniformly to my presence, both when expected and very much unanticipated. Over time, my inquest became more scientific, requiring much greater removal from conventional circuits of activity and conduct until I abandoned my home altogether for the solemnity and quiet of the deep woods, where I could work in peace. At first, I couldn't claim my experiments as the most scientized of efforts, more the exercised curiosity of one perched on the edge of a literal, world-shattering discovery. Over the course of those first few months, I had established a list of persons I desired to test for levels of solidity and historicity. My first outing, that is to say, my first attempt to garner information of a deeper, more extensive type, involved a gloom I'd observed on numerous occasions, wandering the edge of a slender stream that meandered close to my new abode. This creature appeared on my list only as the Wanderer. As a gloom of rather low sophistication, I hadn't anticipated learning all that much from it, but securing it for study would allow me into the habit of approaching and subduing my subjects. Prior to engaging the gloom body, I speculated a bit as to the type and purpose of this particular incarnation, theorizing its principal nature as one who must reflect upon beauty in a voiceless, peripatetic way. This category of gloom, I further assessed, was meant to convey a depth to the depthless, a small body of liquid compelled by gravity to move where it moves. Like an animate asterisk, this type of provisionary enhanced the meaning of whatever it was stationed near. In this case, it stood near a stream, enhancing the beauty of nature. It wasn't difficult to acquire my subject, as its absorption into its work was near absolute, denying it the foresight to see my purpose for what it was. I'd walked up to the thing and offered a few observations concerning the stream, its beauty and such. After it turned to point out the nesting spots of various waterfowl, as if the void would furnish such creatures any real geographic specificity, I applied a chloroformed rag to its face. With the gloom secured within my house, an abandoned cottage indiscernible from the thickets surrounding it, I conducted a series of studies. Rather than detail my fledgling attempts at knowledge, I will instead recount my subsequent, more refined methods of inquiry. First, an interview consisting of some well-pointed questions, 
My discussion always focuses upon the things past, which, in my growing experience, is most difficult for a gloom to articulate. Johnny's come lately that they are. Next, a series of subject-specific questions. In the Wanderer's case, I quizzed it about aesthetics and philosophy, for which the creature had a poor grasp. It seemed to me that the things were absent in appreciation for their overall function, vanishing into the roles they'd been supplied. After satisfying myself with a thorough deconstruction of their given mental faculties, I start upon the body, looking for any organic incongruities with standard biology. I always begin by removing various limbs, comparing each with official medical diagrams I've procured. Afterwards, having exhausted the external leg of the inquiry, so to speak, I work inwards, removing organs in their order of importance to the gloom's overall functioning. I believe it necessary to conduct this stage with the gloom in a state of complete, even heightened awareness, to evoke as much spoken information as possible. When my examination concludes, I select portions of the subject that warrant inclusion within my gloom cabinet. I've been forced to obtain more of them as their contents began spilling out for a lack of space. I then burn what remains of my subject in a nearby cave, pounding to dust what cannot be incinerated. As of this writing, the tail end of the entire process is still very much in the refinement stage, as disposal is every bit as important as acquisition. Throughout the course of my research, I have also become intimate with some additional disappointing truths concerning the extents of our reality. The gentle vision of a sunset, the whimsical rush of wind through an ancient forest, the touch of a pleasing dream at midnight, all the edges of a rickety stage overlooking the void, nothing more. I believe I was first introduced to such limits by the twinkling eyes of a brooch belonging to my alleged mother, a tiny turtle made from precious stones. I remember its gleaming emeralds positioned to appear as the little creature's shell, and the surrounding ring of smaller diamonds, so white and clean they seemed to vanish beneath my eyes, serving to add contrast to the bottomless green within. The beautiful thing appeared so much like a sparkling bit of candy. I was desperate to eat it for its infinite sweetness. Yet ingestion was only the most primitive and obvious way for me to get closer to the dazzling reality that lived within the brooch, teasing an exhilaration found nowhere besides. This sensation, our ultimate capacity for happiness, is another sort of gloom, an artificial exuberance meant to suggest deeper and better layers to reality's compass. But much like peering behind layers of a gloom body's deepest, most sensitive flesh, there is only emptiness beyond a hollow reckoning with the absolute truth. Now, whenever I am most pleased with myself, I realize that I am merely at the limit, much to my elation's demise. Within us all, there dwells an analog of the void, a dull emptiness that becomes us whenever we've had too much or too little. When the light is too bright, too revealing, bleaching the void into sharp, shining focus. These awful, tiny moments, when we're presented the proof of our infinite vacancy, cannot be filled. Of course, that I too am a gloom body, as we all must be, has not slipped my notice. On this particular count, I have deduced after much careful analysis that I am a superior gloom, as must you be, lest your role is merely to listen and not to process, giving the impression that there are people in the world who enjoy listening. 
as a provisionary of elevated purpose and functionality, I've been designed to test the present status of reality, perhaps determine if newer and higher forms of gloom might be fashioned. With this tentative realization in place, my recurring dream makes more sense to me now. It is the void itself that hisses over my shoulder, admonishing my displeasure at the concavity of its attempt at creation. It needs me to understand that I am special, that every day I live is a privileged state of nullity, a holiday from the nothing, or, at minimum, a reprieve from its deeper, less helpful realizations. I am, for now, a careful and curious student of the void spilling out all around me, from the wet interiors of lesser glooms and the sucking vacuum of my superior solitude. It is my purpose to fill myself with all the empty spectacle that is the world. Such is the anatomy of a hollow man. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Yuffie X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.